how Banco de Chile fell for a classic smash and grab, the skinny on InfoSecurity Europe, and the reasons behind the card brands ditching signatures in the US. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. I'm Nick Holland. Banco de Chile experienced something like a smash and grab to the tune of $10 million this week. To tell us more, here's ISMG's managing editor, Jeremy Cook. It's the electronic version of a smash and grab attack, but without breaking windows. Deploy destructive malware to distract from a separate attack on the crown jewels. The style of attack has been seen again. Banco de Chile, the country's second largest financial institution, lost around $10 million in fraudulent SWIFT wire transfers on May 24th. The theft happened while the bank was dealing with hundreds of workstations and servers that suddenly stopped working. The Banco de Chile attack follows an uptick in strikes against banks in Latin America. Last month, five banks in Mexico saw attacks against the interbank electronic payment system, which is used for domestic interbank transfers. Researchers with the security company Flashpoint said they've analyzed the malware used for the distraction portion of the attack against the bank. It's MBR Killer, a component of Boot Trap, a malware program that first struck Russian banks in 2015. MBR Killer tampers with the master boot record, which is the first sector of a hard drive that a computer calls on before loading the operating system. The component renders the local operating system and MBR unreadable. While MBR Killer was wrecking workstations, attackers in the background were going after the bank's SWIFT system. SWIFT is the messaging system used by 11,000 banks around the world to route international wire transfers. Banco de Chile managed to halt some of the fraudulent transfers, but $10 million was lost. It has filed a complaint in Hong Kong where some of the money ended up. Flashpoint says the attacks in Mexico and Chile don't appear to be connected, and there are no reliable clues for attribution either. The source code for Bootrap leaked in early 2016, which means any group could be using it now to cause havoc. Swift messaging systems have proved to be attractive targets due to their widespread use. Attackers haven't exploited specific vulnerabilities in Swift systems, but rather sought to exploit weak controls, such as compromising key accounts to create fraudulent transfers. In early 2016, attackers tried to transfer $951 million out of the New York Federal Reserve account of Bangladesh Bank. Simple mistakes prevented the full amount from transferring, but $81 million was stolen, a portion of which was later recovered. North Korea was blamed for the theft. Since that breathtaking attack, numerous banks have seen attempts to undermine their SWIFT infrastructures. To its credit, SWIFT has sought to raise awareness and improve security, tripling its security team and launching a 24-7 operations center. But it appears that attackers are still finding weaknesses. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Last week, the InfoSecurity Europe conference was held in London. Here's Matthew Schwartz, who was our eyes and ears at the event. Every June, cybersecurity aficionados flock to London for the annual InfoSecurity Europe conference, held again this year at the Olympia Hall in London. The conference has continued to grow, and this year featured 240 sessions, more than 400 exhibitors, and nearly 20,000 attendees. One of this year's keynote speeches was delivered by Robert Hannigan, who, until the beginning of 2017, served as the head of Britain's GCHQ Signals Intelligence and Cryptographic Agency. 
In a fascinating talk, Hannigan charted the evolution of cybercrime gangs, saying some of the most effective ones feature an array of specialists and a CEO-like leader. He also said cybercrime gangs are continuing to blur with nation-state attack groups, with intelligence analysts finding that nation-state attackers by day may be cybercriminals by night, in what he called an interesting mixture of profit and political intent. Other highlights from Hannigan's talk included his observation that Russia has a tendency to live test its attacks, both online and off, as well as to run false flag operations, although it's not always clear why. He also noted that Moscow has invested significantly in terms of people and money in its cybersecurity capabilities over the past 10 years. Of North Korea, meanwhile, Hannigan said the country operates with online objectives that mirror its real-world ones. Namely, with tough sanctions biting the regime, it's seeking cash. That situation helps explain many things, including the WannaCry ransomware outbreak, as well as the $81 million heist from the Bank of Bangladesh. Both have been attributed to North Korea. Hannigan said, and I quote, This is not a crazy state. This is a rational state pursuing rational objectives. Other conference highlights for me included a GDPR panel on which a representative from the ICO talked about how it plans to enforce GDPR, and the heads of privacy programs at Trainline, as well as Thomson Reuters, talked about how they are complying with GDPR and getting to the point where they can keep doing so in a more automated fashion. In addition, I was able to interview dozens of information security professionals and experts in attendance on everything from artificial intelligence and cybercrime to cybersecurity staffing shortages and data breaches. To offer just two quick examples, I spoke with Jaya Balu, the CISO of KPN Telecom in the Netherlands. She told me about how today's increasing geopolitical instability is making CISO's jobs much more difficult. Also, I heard from Australian data breach expert Troy Hunt, who told me there's been an alarming rise in credential stuffing attacks. Stay tuned for the final videos coming soon. In the meantime, those are some of my top highlights from this year's InfoSecurity Europe conference in London. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. If you've made a recent credit card transaction in the US, you might not have had to actually sign for that anymore at the point of sale. I spoke with Linda Kirkpatrick from MasterCard regarding changes on this requirement for authentication. 50 years ago, when the card networks were originally formed, Signature was really the only form of cardholder verification method that existed in the marketplace. In an analog world where dynamic authentication was, was not even a thought in anyone's mind, uh, Signature really meant something. And the merchants that took payment cards got into the practice of checking a signature and, you know, looking at the individual and perhaps validating their signature against another form of ID. Uh, but over time, clearly we've evolved as, the, as an industry. Uh, we've innovated on, you know, multiple ways to make transactions more secure at the point of sale. And, uh, you know, most recently, two and a half years ago, the entire U.S. market migrated to EMV and chip technology. And, you know, we are in some instances in the U.S. Uh, a laggard with the rest of the world, which is much more aligned around uh, chip and the importance of, of chip as a, as a dynamic cardholder verification method uh, and one that's much more difficult to penetrate from a, from a fraud perspective. Uh, and so with that evolution and advancement, 
we took that opportunity to evaluate the rules that were in place for many years and identify which ones were, you know, had, had outrun their useful life and the use of signature as a cardholder verification method when we had other methods like chip, like PIN, like biometric, um, and other platforms uh, like tokenization, um, which really eclipsed the safety and security that, that our, our merchants were, uh, were working with. You know, it really seemed that the signature had become irrelevant uh, as a cardholder verification method. So that's really what, what drove the impetus for the change. So if we're moving away from signature, then are we going to see a shift to PIN in the U.S.? I asked Linda. Well, I think uh, we do see PIN on some portfolios. You know, our EMV rubric for fraud and liability shift does provide protection to the entity that has the highest form of authentication, and, and PIN is part of that rubric. So we do see some pockets of PIN issuance. You know, certainly from a debit perspective, PIN is readily used. So we're, 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 you know, we continue to see momentum there. On the credit side, it's, it's an issuer by issuer decision uh, as to whether they'll embed PIN on, on their portfolios. Each bank has their own uh, level of risk tolerance and their own strategy for how to implement safety and security measures. And so that's, you know, something that you would probably want to ask them about. But from our perspective, PIN is, is secure. It's included in our EMV rubric, and um, we are seeing increased PIN issuance. That's the ISMG Security Report. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.